Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Back from your travels. Hi, Alex. How are you? Yes, back from your travels as well. I know. We've been really at it, haven't we? In this this great festival season, we've been festivaling. Where have you been? Well, we've been out of our houses, which is odd, isn't it? Not entirely welcome, let's face it, for (laughs) oldsters like us. (laughs) Exactly. I was at Kenwood House in North London for How the Light Gets In Festival to do a live podcast, of which more later. And where were you? I was in Marlborough in Wiltshire, where I went to the lovely Marlborough Literature Festival and I talked to Ali Smith and Carmela Shamsey and Joe Browning Rowe. When I say I talked to them, I chatted to a lot of people, obviously, but I talked to them in front, I officially chatted to them in front of other people, and that was great. Uh, And always a huge pleasure to talk to Ali Smith Mm. and Carmela Shamsi. But it was really lovely to do an event with Joe Browning Rowe, whose book, A Terrible Kindness. It's about embalmers who take up the rallying cry to go and help in the immediate aftermath of the Aberfan disaster. So you can imagine one intense opening to a novel Mm. that is. And what was really amazing was we were talking in a little church hall in front of a a group of people and two people had got sort of personal experiences that they related. Of Aberfan? Yes. One of them was a, a woman who remembered coming home and finding a note from her father saying, I've gone to Aberfan, they lived about 30 miles away. And he was in charge of coordinating the medical response, the ambulances and the doctors and nurses who went there. Gosh. And you kind of just imagine moving it was to hear. It was just mm. extraordinary. It was really an amazing event mm. and it's a wonderful book. And there we are. That's what I've been doing. And you talked, well, we'll find out who you're talking we'll to. Find out who I talked to. <laughs> It's very secret and surprising. It's not, but we will tell you about it later. I was, Alex, I was thinking we haven't been able to talk about gardens for ages. Perhaps we could, can we talk about gardens next week, do you think? Yes, yes. A brief late hurrah from dahlias in mine, but otherwise it's extremely wet. Let's just talk about that Talk about what you do in the autumn in your garden. Precisely. A lot of seed collecting. Just before we get on to our main business, I wanted to just mention 
a wonderful initiative, a fundraiser for people affected, which is basically the entire country by the Pakistan floods. I mean, just terrible devastation, which will take years and years and years. And it's right. millions and millions of people affected, Absolutely isn't it? so. And yeah. there is an auction of all sorts of literary things, books, first editions, sessions with authors and agents, all that kind of thing that's been organised. And I'm just going to direct people to it. There's all sorts of things. I saw today that actually a recently added lot was a trip on a Nile cruise, which is that's pretty good going for a sort of Agatha Christie type thing. But we hope with fewer, fewer with no murder. Yeah. But uh, I do direct people to have a look at that. You just go to www.airauctioneer.com forward slash books hyphen for hyphen Pakistan. But we will put that on our podcast page as well. Airauctioneer.com forward slash books hyphen for hyphen Pakistan. But without further ado, And definitely remembering that we will come back to gardens next week. And if you would write in and tell us how yours is doing or anything else you want to write in and tell us about. But first, autumn brings a slew of literary festivals up and down the country and throughout the world. But our spotlight this week is on something very special. The 29th meeting of the Lviv Book Forum, which will host Ukrainian and international writers and thinkers in a series of online events. The weekend's proceedings will be available via the Hay Festival, and we're delighted to be joined by Sofia Jeliak, who created the programme. Sofia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here. I feel we must ask you, first of all, what the situation in Lviv is like right now for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, we are so privileged to be like in really safe uh, because of uh, the city we used to be bombed a few times but it wasn't in the city center it was civil infrastructure but in general it hasn't cases like a lot of deaths or something like this but here now we are like uh, really in safe place even we don't have a lot of alarms per month so yeah here of course it's uh, we can feel the war because of a lot of our friends a lot of friends of friends has joined the army forces uh, or still are in the danger because of their like around ukraine but in general here in Lviv is quite safe well, i know quite a lot of cultural things have relocated to Lviv haven't they throughout the course of the war Yes, like, uh, but in general, it was at the beginning. Lviv was a main point of people coming uh, from all over Ukraine uh, to the west regions of country. Uh, so it was like millions of people here and... Uh, you know, our um, floor in our flats, it was booked by people like having sleep here. But, uh, and a lot of culture workers and culture institutions were based here. But uh, from the beginning of the summer, a lot of people starting to beg for mm-hmm. other cities, for their home cities, especially cities in Kiev region. So now we have few institutions here, especially museums from the east regions uh, of Ukraine, basically from the Donetsk and Luhansk region. And we have some institutions from Mariupol and from Kharkiv. But in general, now we are dividing as uh, people with Kiev, Odessa and other big Ukrainian cities. Well, it's wonderful that the Book Forum is taking place this weekend. You must be so busy right now. Tell us about what you want to achieve this year. It's the 29th edition of your festival. And how did you begin to plan it this year? Uh, Yeah, like we are really busy on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, I still can't... uh, realize that we are organizing the festival because of part of my mind's just like okay it's a war you're organizing a festival during the war okay it's a safe city but girl what are you doing so uh, yeah uh, in general the idea of the festival um, the festival has started 20 years ago but not as a festival but as a book fair we used to uh, our colleagues were trying to collect uh, all publishers publishing a book in Ukrainian language and representing a new uh, book market in Europe because during the Soviet Union, 
all the publishers were controlled and founded by the government. And of course, they were working uh, under the censorship. And in the beginning of 19th, uh, Ukrainians uh, had finally chance uh, to organize their own uh, publishing houses. So in 1994, we, uh, our team organized the first book forum just to bring all Ukrainian books in one place. After years, uh, we started to organize uh, uh, literary events within the program. And I think like absent 50 years, uh, we founded a Lviv Literary Festival within the Book Fair program. Now it's called Book Forum. We have cancelled the Book Fair only uh, once uh, before, during the COVID year in 2020. We had only the literary program uh, online. But this year, I must tell that at the beginning of full-scale invasion, uh, we didn't know we can ever organize a festival in Lviv. And we wasn't uh, confident in our presence. But fortunately, I've had a, a chance to meet with Peter Pomeranzo. He came here to write about what is going on and to find a way to help Ukrainians. Uh, so we had a talk about uh, the role of culture in general uh, during the war. And after this talk, he asked me why you are not organizing the festival. And I was starting uh, to explain something about uh, like its danger and so on. And he looked at me like and tell me like, it's not danger here, like, let's do it. Like, it will be like historical. So from that moment, I've started to work on the conception. After we started to work with the Zinc Company and the Zinc Company invited Hay Festival to the cooperation. So now Hay Festival is our digital partner. And we are so lucky to have such wonderful partners being so open and really trying to help and to organize a festival at the highest level. So we are working together and all the discussions with internationals, with Ukrainians, you can watch uh, in English and in Spanish at the Hey Festival website. Uh, you can register like it's really quick. And after you receive the link for all the events are going to be broadcasted. It's a wonderful partnership, it looks like. And I know that they're absolutely delighted to be able to do their bit for the digital to make it online. So are you having physical events in Lviv and the things online or is it just online? We are bringing uh, some of international here in Lviv. Some of the internationals and Ukrainians basically are joining us online. For example, on the one hand, Neil Heyman, Margaret Atwood, Elif Shafak, uh, Yuval Noy Harari, uh, Abdul Razak Gurnaze are joining us online. But on the other hand, we are really privileged uh, to have Ukrainian writers and journalists join the armed forces of Ukraine after the full-scale invasion, uh, sharing their ideas, connecting to the discussion topics. But there are some of writers, internationals and Ukrainians coming here in Lviv. And it's also a big gesture of solidarity with Ukrainians. Writers and journalists, especially internationals, are going to stay here and uh, they're all trying to find their own plots and to see what is going on in Ukraine. Uh, they're really brave to share this experience with us together. And we are really extremely uh, happy to uh, host them this year in Lviv. Well, you just have, as you've mentioned, some of the people, you have an amazing program. And I, I did notice that last year's Nobel Prize winner in literature, Abdul Razak Gurna, who you just mentioned, is going to be joining you. I mean, his subject throughout his career has so often been war and displacement. He left his own country of birth, Zanzibar, when it was riven by civil war. So I'm guessing he was a wonderful choice for you. It's about bringing all sorts of different experiences to bear on the current situation, isn't it? Yes, and also we understand that people all over the world are focused on Ukraine. But unfortunately, uh, not only Ukraine is under the fire. There are a lot of things going on. The war in Syria is, uh, wasn't ended. There, is, there are 
new regime in Afghanistan and females uh, and peoples are really surviving. Also, we uh, can witness uh, the protests in Iran, like really a revolution leaded by a female all over the world. Also, uh, we have uh, our post-Soviet experience we are in Ukraine calling uh, basically post-colonial experience. And now we are trying to recreate our own story, our own history, our own culture after the 70 years being under Russia and under the Soviet Union. And we are going this year trying to discuss is our post-Soviet Union really close to, uh, for example, uh, African countries uh, experience or Asia countries experience and can we have the solidarity between our countries uh, just based on the resisting and based on the um, uh, freedom, liberty and happiness, uh, like our will to have this fr freedom, liberty and happiness. So yeah, we are trying to be like a big hub and we are trying to discuss all these topics within our program. And uh, we suppose it's our aim for future too. And after Ukraine win, we really hope to help our other people uh, all over the world to share their ideas, to share their stories. And based on our experience of war and surviving war crimes collection, we will be experienced enough to share our knowledges with people all over the world. Well, I noticed too that some of the people that you've invited have long-standing associations with Ukraine, don't they? I mean, there's, for example, the, the neurosurgeon, Henry Marsh, who's worked with neurosurgeons in Ukraine for decades. Mm -hmm. He's taking part in a, a panel called Love and Loss, which also features palliative care doctor and author, Rachel Clark, Yoko Prohashko, Andrzej Mizak, and Irina Chibuk. Tell us a little bit about that and what is behind that panel. A lot of Ukrainians, unfortunately, has faced with lost, with... Um, damages of uh, their homes and a lot of people are harmed. So um, on the one hand, um, war is really cruel thing. Uh, there are a lot of blood and dirtiness, but on the other hand, we faced with a lot of love and are willing to support other people as much as we can. So this year, Henry Marsh and Rachel Clark with Jurko Prochasko and Andri Mazak, they're going to help us and give and share their experience in supporting people facing uh, illness, facing death, because of, uh, of course, it's really hard to survive this, but on the other hand, it can be a new beginning of our lives and new lives, uh, basically. I've read a few days ago um, a story of one uh, Ukrainian artist, Ivana Dimit. She lost her son. He was uh, a soldier. Uh, he joined uh, armed forces after the full-scale invasion, and she uh, was telling about her experience. And she told us that it was really hard. And she was uh, like, at the beginning, she was like closing in her flat and just don't want to see anyone else uh, except uh, Netflix serials. Uh, but after she started working with a psychotherapist and talking with other doctors and people with the same same experience, she recreated her life and started volunteering, helping other people to prevent more deaths. So um, this, in general, this discussion is also a chance for people experience such big struggles, find a new hope. It's a literary festival and you've got these wonderful, very positive, actually, ideas about solidarity that you were talking about, but also that quite practical, isn't it? You've got practicing doctors and nurses who are saying, actually, this is how you deal with it. This is what you do. So it's intellectual and also sort of practical help straight away. Yeah, all of us, we became really practical. On the one hand, of course, Henry Marsh, basically, he's like a perfect intellectual. So uh, I really hope like to hear uh, his thoughts uh, about all the situation and of course he's going to share it. 
But on the other hand, yes, uh, all the discussions are going to have this uh, practical uh, side because of we are talking about the war crimes and what to do with the war crimes collection and how to collect them for the future tribunal. Also, we are talking about the propaganda and what we are going to do with, uh, for example, Russia propagandists. We are going to discuss uh, and start this discussion, do they the same uh, war crimes as uh, soldiers listen to them doing in Ukraine. Also, we are going to discuss, for example, um, even the discussion about art and literature during the war is also practical uh, because of writers are going to share their own experience and maybe this experience will help someone in the future to find uh, their way um, writing as a psychotherapy. Mm. I must tell that uh, one more thing like to tell a lot of writers used to work with um, Fiction in Ukraine now uh, focused on the nonfiction generally. Even poets, they are writing nonfiction uh, poems uh, because of we are facing the reality being really intense and interesting. But also, this um, documentary pieces could be used as an evidence in the future. So yeah, in our minds, we became really practical because of the times are dictating this, but we really hope uh, to back to the fiction, to some imagination after we win. Sophia, I had the great pleasure and privilege of reading Sergei Jadam's book, The Orphanage, in the course of judging a prize, which in fact, the orphanage was awarded to earlier this year. And of course, what I thought was, I don't know very much about Ukrainian fiction. I'm not very well read in it. As much as you have names that will be recognizable to people outside Ukraine, you also are showcasing a lot of wonderful Ukrainian writers. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit about them and tell us how they have managed to keep communicating throughout the invasion and the war. Uh, yeah, like you mentioned, Sergei Jadan, I was inviting him for like two months uh, and he agreed to be a guest of our festival. But unfortunately, like fortunately, he's going to be on tour through the Europe to collect money to help Ukrainian forces. So, uh, yeah, we, we decided to have him the next year. But speaking about this year, participants, I would love to tell about some of them, like, for example, Victoria Malina. She has written uh, a text about a dog dom. It's a dog living in Lviv and discovering a Lviv history because of Lviv uh, during the 20th century, uh, Lviv has changed like few countries. It used to be uh, Austro-Hungarian empire after it was a part of Poland, after it was part of Soviet Union, after the Soviet Union uh, was occupied by the Nazis, it was a part of uh, Germany, after it back to the uh, Soviet Union. And finally, it became a city of independent Ukraine. So this uh, dog dom was discovering people living in Lviv, for, for example, Stanislav Lem or Josef Roth and he was like telling a story for people and yeah it was a perfect non-fiction but now uh, Victoria is working with the war crimes and he's writing a non-fiction book uh, about females working with the war crime collection and their stories and how do they deal with all these uh, things uh, because of even if you are not in the epicenter, but just listening to the stories influence you greatly. I can tell about Ostap Slavinsky. Ostap Slavinsky, he is a poet, but now he is writing a poem collection, the War Dictionary. The War Dictionary is a poem, um, like I suppose it's translating into English already. Tilda Spinton was uh, reading uh, some uh, poems from this uh, poem collection. So um, he's writing uh, stories about usual things, for example, a cup or table or window or like bus or something like this. Uh, but this is poems about 
have this uh, all this stuff, all this usual thing were used uh, during people experience uh, the like war, the first day of full scale invasion. They are like trying to leave their homes and like back to other cities. He was walking in the shelter for displaced people. And in the nights when he was like staying there to help, uh, he was talking to them and uh, like uh, collecting their stories. Also, I can tell about, uh, she's not an artist, but you can be like, you can find her works. She used to work as a designer and now she director of two art platform and uh, now she's uh, organized quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss in uh, art events around the world Diana Berg Diana Berg she was living in Donetsk uh, but mm-hmm. after the war has started in 2014 she was working for the platform Isolatia it was one of the biggest Ukraine art centers based in an old fabric uh, it was like a huge premises like with a lot of holes a lot of artists all over the world come there so um, Diana have to leave his home uh, Donetsk she moved to Mariupol. Um, the whole Isolatia platform moved to Kiev, but she would love to stay as close to her own city as possible. But this year, she have also left her place uh, one more time. Mariupol became a second city for her, but uh, now it's completely destroyed. Uh, her flat is destroyed and uh, she was uh, now uh, her team they're working all over the world to promote Ukrainian uh, art culture and also to share stories about Mariupol. Also like uh, in this line I can also remember Stanislav Asiev. Stanislav Asiev he is a journalist and he was working for Radio Liberty and basically, he decided after the occupation of Donetsk in 2014, uh, he decided to stay in Donetsk and work um, as a journalist, uh, not showing his face, of course, and name, but like sending the truth information to Ukraine and to the West medias, uh, media. Uh, so uh, he was working there, I suppose, for like two or three years. But after uh, he was imprisoned uh, by Russians and he was imprisoned basically in this art center in the Isolatia, which uh, was recreated by Russians to the real concentrative camp. And 
he has written like book about his experience of staying in, uh, for two years in this concentrative camp. This book is also like, it's really horrible book, but it's really truthful book. And it's already translated into English. And now he's working like still working as a journalist and promoting and uh, defending uh, the other prisoners uh, of Russia. And he's walking and hoping that all of them will be free one day. That's an amazing, amazing program that you've put together, Sophia. And we are so grateful to you for coming to share it with us. Just remind our listeners again when exactly things start and how they can join you. So the main program starts at the morning of 7th of October and at 9th. So you can find all the information at the Hay Festival uh, website. To see all the discussions, you can uh, register. Uh, it's really easy and it's free. And after you register, if you miss some of the discussion of the discussion in live broadcasting you can always return and see these uh, videos again and again thank you so much we could not wish you more success could we lucy no it's wonderful that it's happening and it's just what you're doing is so interesting and so necessary and very brave so we just hope that everybody will listen and watch and read and get involved and and i hope it goes brilliantly well Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Alex. And thank you so much, uh, Lucy, for this conversation. Well, thank you for joining us. Still to come on the show, we'll be at another festival, the How the Light Gets In Festival in London. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. So at the weekend, we did a live podcast as part of the How the Light Gets In Festival. Alex couldn't join us, sadly, but I was delighted to have with me David Horsepool, who is the TLS's history editor and a well-known voice to our dear listeners. We were talking to the actor and novelist Sophie Ward and the professor of Chinese history, Rana Mitter, about narratives, global, national and personal who tells them, how they change, and how they can shape our experience. And here's a taste of what we talked about. But we're here to talk about narratives. So we're going to, in, in, in a global sense, in a political sense, and also in a personal sense. Uh, and we're talking about narratives um, in terms of fiction, in terms of uh, philosophical thought experiments, in terms of the stories that nations tell each other, or political movements. Um, so from the point of view of one single ant, which is an example from Sophie's work, to the direction of a superpower whose actions affect the whole world, which is an example from Rana's work. So I think we're going to start from the, the micro and move up, as it were. So I'm going to begin, um, Sophie, by asking you about your first book, yes. Love and Other Thought Experiments. So the clue is in the name, isn't it? They're a linked set of stories with yes. lots of different narrators and narrative threads. Can you, can you talk us through the idea of it? Um, yes, well, the thing that I was really interested in was how um, philosophical thought experiments, which um, you may or may not know are um, ideas that have been... Um, expanded by all kinds of people, but um, 
particularly uh, by philosophers in philosophy of mind, to examine areas of consciousness. So that's how you get your philosophical zombies and um, various extraordinary ideas that can only be looked at in this way. Um, and I was so interested in how um, these often very scientific ideas um, about brains or, I mean, they're also used in economics and all kinds of different disciplines, um, were looked at from a narrative point of view. Um, and th this uh, tiny crossover between you know, arts and sciences was really being demonstrated in these thought experiments. Um, and I wanted to take them, they're often tiny little stories, um, one of the famous ones is um, Mary's room. When Mary sees red for the first time, she's, you know, let's say, a brilliant neuroscientist, and she knows everything about color. But she's only ever seen black and white. When she experiences the color red for the first time, is something different happening to her brain than she could ever have understood purely by knowing everything about color before, but without ever having experienced it. Um, and that particular thought experiment set off a whole chain of thought experiments and books called What Does Mary Know? And um, a lot, everybody in, in philosophy of mind was conversing through this particular thought experiment. Um, and so that was really intriguing me, and I wanted to take them into bigger narratives. And so I developed this uh, framework of my 10 favorite <laughs> thought experiments. <laughs> like your top 10. <laughs> my top 10, <laughs> yes. And um, and then uh, it built my novel around them. And in each chapter, there's the same cast of characters, and each chapter looks at a different thought experiment from a different character's point of view. And was it also a way of um, having different perspectives and different kind of refractions on what is the same central story, as it were? I mean, it evolves throughout the book, doesn't it? But it's, as you yeah. say, it's the same characters. And it's yeah. So you, you have the development of a, of a family over a period of about a century. Um, but I also wanted to see how sort of central elements are looked at by different people and experienced differently. And sometimes it's sort of glancing, um, and sometimes it's the actual main things, of the, <laughs> the pillars of the family, and, um, but all while exploring what this particular thought experiment might mean. The stories don't talk about the actual thought experiment. No. They're just exactly, they embody it. Um, and uh, I, I'd always loved uh, the work of Bourguet's, and he has done something. Uh, obviously, a lot of his work are thought, uh, considered thought experiments. Mm. Um, and, uh, but they don't go, f they, they take one brilliant idea, and you know, and I wanted to look at it more from a, a very, very narrative much more sort of integrated with our ideas of fiction and mm. and it does stretch <coughs> it because I wasn't joking about the ant there's a there's a, a story about the, uh, the ant is mm. actually really very uh, is, is incredibly important in the story mm. and there's a brilliant line in it where, where you uh, somebody says um, so once you've heard about the ant you can't get rid of the ant and yes. I thought, oh, you've just done that to us, because yeah. I can't forget about the ant now. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. ant is, and, you, and, and, you, and there's a whole story from the point of view of the ant. Yes. Was that difficult? I mean, this is a silly question, but <laughs> was that difficult to write? <laughs> it, it, it wasn't really, because it's the same as anything. I mean, I, I obviously, I do, uh, Thomas Nagel has this thing about what is it like to be a bat, um, and how we can't ever experience life from a bat's point of view, but as a writer and an actor, that's sort of my job, is to do as, as close as I can to get into the space of... Um, so, and in, my, in the story, the ant goes into one of my character's eyes while she's asleep. Um, it enters there, and then it makes a home in her brain, um, and somewhat helps her, and then their consciousness fuses. So there was that thing of like looking at the ant from the ant point of view at first before it then has some understanding about the world. Um, and I was really interested in this idea of um, how for an ant, it's all about the community and being part of a whole. Mm. Whereas for the human whose brain they connect with, it's all about the individual looking out and how that huge change in perspective might 
might feel to a consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that that was, and I and I think obviously ants are really interesting um, analogous for people and you know what the communities they build and it's one of the sort of probably s smallest creatures that you can actually watch and they're around us everywhere and then I think there was an article in last week it's uncountable I mean there was trillions and, and there's so or many trillion ants. yes, yes. Mm. Um, <coughs> they're everywhere building their own societies talk about your your most recent book and in fact um, also partly the subject of the book you reviewed in the TLS but your book The Good War Rana you look at the way China's uses experience of the Second World War to tell a new story about itself um, but before we we get into that I think possibly without wanting to insult the uh, knowledgeability of uh, our fine audience <laughs> I certainly um, could do with a small primer on China's e actual experience of the war because I feel like we know the European war and even the Pacific war better than we do China's war I mean for example China's war didn't start in 1939 or 1941 if you're American or Russian it started in 1937, am I right? That's right, or if you take the official Chinese government position actually with the invasion of Manchuria in 1931, and at least with some scholars these days, you could argue that there's a continuity of the Second World War in China and then a civil war between the nationalists, the communists, and the Korean War, taking it all the way up to 1953. There is a connection actually I can make with, with Sophie's aunt, or uh -huh. an aunt anyway, <laughs> because I've recently been reading the diary a man called Zhu Kezhen, who was um, a university president, um, and he was serving just in the aftermath of uh, World War II in China, in uh, the city of Hangzhou. And he wrote in his diary uh, about that time, just shortly after the war had come to an end, but there were more tremors of war, a civil war happening, that um, when human beings plomped around on the pavement, they may be, they might be killing large numbers of ants under their feet, which would be a very big deal for the ant world, but a very small world, uh, small deal for the human world. And in the same way, he felt the forces of kind of gods and nature and so forth that were causing the turbulence of war in the world. They might be causing something that was of huge turmoil to the humans, the Chinese who were suffering through the war. But maybe as gods, they just didn't think about this very, uh, very much. He was quite a, quite a religious man. And the war that he was thinking of was the one that had just finished that you mentioned, which was China's experience of World War II. Um, it is a huge and tragic and very engrossing story, which we don't have time to, of course, go into the whole of, but a couple of key facts and statistics that maybe give an idea of the scale. The main body of the war was the longest theater of war fought by any allied power during World War II, starting in 1937 rather than 39 to 45. Although even now statistics are hard to come by because it was such a period of turmoil, reasonable estimates would suggest that anything between 8 to 14 million or more Chinese died either through direct combat or famines and other disasters that happened as a result of the war. And up to 100 million Chinese became refugees in their own country during that time. And not incidentally, for four and a half years, from the outbreak of war between China and Japan directly until Pearl Harbor, when the West, the Americans and the British came in, uh, the Chinese resistance held back something like half a million Japanese troops who were held down, little like the Americans of Vietnam 20 years later, um, in a quagmire after the invasion, or indeed the similarities with Ukraine are perhaps also worth, uh, worth, worth thinking about. So this was a devastating set of events, and although China did end up as one of the victorious allied powers, the devastation, the destruction on the population, on the infrastructure, the sheer morale of China set the path for what we now think of as the communist revolution that came to power just a few years later in 1949. So World War II in China, titanic set of events. Yeah, and, and I think we, when we look back at um, our narratives of the war from our point of view or from the Americans, we, we obviously all tell rather simplified stories o of our wars and ones which miss out inconvenient truths. Um, and in... Uh, you know, in, in Britain we talk about standing alone, in France they lean into talking about the resistance rather than about Vichy, um, in Russia it's kind of more about an existential threat, and in America it's about the greatest generation. Um, with China, were they able to start having a narrative to tell each other uh, sort of right away? I would have thought they couldn't because they were, they were involved in another war straight away as well, and, and, and there was a competing That's uh, right, David. narrative there. Narrative became 
deeply, deeply um, shattered, uh, you know, refracted almost through shards of, of, of glass, of memory during that time. To fast forward for a moment to the present day, the reason that the book's called China's Good War is, few well, people here may know that uh, Studs Terkel, the great uh, American oral historian, wrote a wonderful narrative history, but based on oral testimony of GIs and others who had lived through America's war. And the, the, the term good war was ironic because it meant in terms of the narrative we could tell ourselves about why we fought World War II, in his case he meant as opposed to the Vietnam War in, in America. So I would say that I'd call it China's good war in tribute to that book because these days China, People's Republic of China, talks about World War II a great deal. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, during the pandemic year, big pandemic year, 2020, the biggest selling film in China, the box office, $300 million that it took, was a World War II epic, you know, still bringing in the, the, the customers. Whenever um, uh, Xi Jinping and other top Chinese leaders go around talking about China's contribution to the world, one thing they mention frequently is that China was one of the allied powers that fought fascism. So they use that, that, that memory very strongly. But it didn't emerge immediately at the end of the war. And there's one central reason for that. The government that ruled China at the time, the nationalist or Kuomintang government under Chiang Kai-shek, which led the resistance in alliance with its communist partners, the nationalists and the communists in China hated each other. The nationalists forced the Chinese communists on the famous Long March in the mid-1930s to try and you know, wipe them out. But during the war against the Japanese, when the Japanese invaded in, in 1937, the two sides reluctantly worked together. And the vast majority of the set-piece battles during that 37 to 45 period were done by, were carried out by nationalist troops. And these names are much less familiar in the West than El Alamein or the Bulge or Arnhem or all names which you know, have some resonance in the West even if you don't know the details. But Taiyuan, Changsha, Shanghai, these are huge battles during this period, very little known outside China. Almost all of them, with one exception, 100 regiments campaign, fought by nationalist troops. And the communists carried out the thing for which they'd become most famous in later years. The Vietnamese certainly learned guerrilla warfare. So it's a different sort of warfare out in the countryside. But that complex story about dual contributions, different sorts of pushback against the enemy, got taken into a much simpler story under Chairman Mao between the 1940s and really after his death, the 1980s, which was the only people in that story who fought were the Chinese communists. And nobody else, the Americans, the British, the Chinese nationalists, were out of the story. And it wasn't until the 80s and 90s, leading into the present day, that the nationalist element was brought back into the communist Chinese story. Part of the reason was pragmatic. They wanted to get closer to Taiwan. They still do, as we know, of course. And being a bit nicer about the Chinese nationalist war effort, because the nationalists had fled to Taiwan in 1949, helped to reshape that particular narrative, at least for a while, rather effectively. But it was also because after the terror of the Cultural Revolution of the 60s, China needed a patriotic nationalist narrative that brought people together across factions rather than being a story as happened under Mao in the 60s of people basically smashing up the system and destroying everything in China rather than coming together in one purposeful uh, um, campaign against an outside invader. And that's why World War II came back into vogue as a way of the Chinese thinking about their own identity in the present day. So was it, sorry, I'm just thinking about narrative strands again, they had to kind of incorporate the, the, the nationalist strand and, and, and change the narrative a bit in order to, well, to get recognition. Is, is that right? But, well, because, because it was very, because their contribution yeah. was not really recognised. It wasn't recognised. You said change it a bit. I would say it wasn't quite 180 degrees, but maybe like 125, 108, uh, 130, right, something yeah. like that. In other words, having said, the only thing you need to know about this guy, Chiang Kai-shek, and these nationalists who fled to Taiwan is that they were traitors who betrayed the communist rule, you know, enemies of the communist revolution, never speak of them again. Instead, they had to do a shift to saying, but actually, you know what, they fought a lot against the Japanese, and uh, we really should be grateful for that part of their contribution, which was something very, you couldn't possibly have said that in Mao's China in 1968. You know, it was absolutely mainstream by the 1990s in China. And one of the reasons was that it rehabilitated a large part of the population that had never been able to talk about it. So just one quick example. Again, those who grew up here, probably many people in this audience in Britain, uh, like me, you would have read in school probably some of the, the great children's books that were about being sent as an evacuee to the countryside, um, Fireweed by Jill Payton Walsh or Carrie's War by Nina Borden. You know, it's classic children's literature. None of the stories about young Chinese boys, girls, men, women being evacuated up the Yangtze River to the wartime capital at Chongqing in central China 
ever made it into that kind of public sphere during the years of Chairman Mao, because those people had fled not to the communist areas, but the nationalist areas. And their stories remained taboo. They were told in families, I was told this by people who told me about their family kitchen supper stories about wartime evacuations, air raids, all the things that we think of associated with the London Blitz. The Chongqing Blitz happened two years before that, but nobody talked about it. Now it's absolutely part of the culture of museums, of children's stories, of television programs, of social media. And it's that shift that was opened up partly to allow China finally to tell stories to itself about a trauma that had never been properly discussed in public and finally emerged bizarrely, but actually it meant the eyes of many in a very welcome way, 40 years later. And that was Sophie Ward and Rana Mitter talking to us this weekend as part of a live podcast. Many thanks to them. have time for this week. Our thanks go to Sofia Chelyak, Sophie Ward and Rana Mitter. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy. From Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.